The Swithin, Book 2, Episode 17. Welcome to The Swithin. Greetings, folks. This is Scott Tellick, author of The Swithin, the series that tells the real legend of King Arthur and his buds in a series of epic fantasy novels and in this very podcast. We're going to continue listening to book two, The Sons of Constance, but just remember, if you get tired of listening over the next several weeks, the entire book is available right now as an ebook and paperback at Amazon and various other online retailers. And actually, book three, in which Arthur is born at the end, is going to be out next week, and if you don't mind reading it on a Kindle or other electronic device, you can get it for a dollar right now when it's going to go up to three dollars after it's released on around the 15th or so. And you can keep up with all the shocking events and developments by finding The Swithin on Facebook, Twitter, and our website, theswithin.com. Just search for The Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N. Okay, so I had somewhat of an Arthurian shocker as I read The Prose Lancelot, a.k.a. The Vulgate Cycle, which is one of the longest and most detailed versions of the entire of the Arthurian legend, which is why it's one of my primary sources for these books. And that was written between 1215 and 1235. And this part I'm reading is the, is way, way down the line in the story. Like, we're in book two right now, and this stuff will be like in book ten or so. But imagine my surprise to learn that there is a male knight who was in love with Lancelot and a rival with Guinevere for Lancelot's affections, and that he was been all but erased by any contemporary version of the legends. This is Galahot, and he comes to challenge King Arthur during the early part of his reign, and he easily defeats Arthur. Please note, he defeats King Arthur. And it's looking like curtains for our noble King Arthur, but Galahot sees Lancelot and sees immediately that this is the best knight in all the world, paragon of manhood and all that, and decides that he will do anything to serve Lancelot. And Lancelot asks him to defeat Arthur and then the next day go and ask Arthur to join him and ask for his forgiveness and everything. And Galahad does. Then the two of them, Galahad and Lancelot, become best buds and it's very heavily implied that they actually do sleep together. But they do fall in love, and soon Galahad is a very real rival with Guinevere for Lancelot's affections. You have to understand that this is not gay or even bisexual in the way we understand those terms now. They just had a very different understanding of what affection between men could be back then, and even within this super strongly Christian context. So it's kind of crazy. Nevertheless, it does result in the old stereotypical tragic outcome for the homosexual as Galahad is taken to one side and told that he has to bow out or else Lancelot will stay with him because Lancelot also loves him and would give up everything for him if he asked. And if Galahad does not bow out, Lancelot will never go on to father Galahad and thus the Holy Grail will never be achieved. So Galahad backs off and eventually dies of a broken heart, having sacrificed himself for love. And while he does have an old hoary cliche of the gay man who meets a tragic outcome for his love, it's worth noticing that he is presented as the ultimate badass warrior who is much more powerful and strong than even King Arthur himself. Now... 
this is right there and very prominent in the Vulgate cycle. But when Thomas Mallory in 1485 compiled all of these stories into Le Mort d'Arthur, he reduced Galahad to just a name in passing and completely left his story out, completely left out the whole story of his love with Lancelot. And since this was the most popular telling of the story and the one that was taken up by history, almost all the Arthurian stuff we've seen since then was developed from it, and thus Galahad was effectively been whitewashed out of the story. That's how things are lost to history. Anyway, so there you go. Terribly interesting Arthurian breaking news. All right, so let's get on with our story for today, which will bring us to the end of part two, and part three will start next week. And that's where, in my opinion, things really start getting good and fun and interesting and dark and mysterious and awesome. All right, so let's get going. Part two, chapter 32. Then it was the day the Saxons who'd held with Hengst were to leave. King Pendragon, Uther, Ulfius, and all the advisors in Merlin, as well as countless of Pendragon's men, were to gather to see them out. The ceremony to mark their leaving was to be a complicated construction composed of interleaved layers of honor and humiliation. On the one hand, they were leaving in defeat from a country they had intended to invade and colonize. On the other, they'd made a pragmatic decision to leave peacefully, especially once their leader, who'd pushed for the invasion, was dead, leaving only his followers who weren't entirely sure why they were there in the first place. And this pragmatic decision allowed them to leave without further loss of men, who were gradually being decreased every day that they held out pointlessly and Britain kept them constantly besieged, and allowed them to walk out with honor. Only... On a further level, with the Britons lining a path that the Saxon troops would take out of their castle stronghold, forcing them to march past their victors as they went, it was an honorable defeat with a subtle but clear level of humiliation. They could walk out honorably, but not without marching under the firm gaze of those who were ordering them out. Merlin had advised, and Pendragon had issued firm orders, that his troops were not to make any contemptuous or mocking expressions to the Saxons as they left, each knowing full well that certain of his men would go ahead anyway, especially after engaging in close battle with the enemy for so long. But it was an occasion in which the fact of the official orders mattered, even more than the reality of how they were enforced. Merlin told Pendragon to convey to his men how a nonviolent victory with honor could be even more satisfying than a simplistic killing of a foe, an idea which ran counter to the ideals the troops had ever been exposed to, although they were willing to try it out and see how it felt. On certain occasions such as this, a king is aware that the events of that day will be recorded and become part of history. As Pendragon dressed for the day, or more accurately, was dressed, although he was getting used to being alone while several servants hovered about him, his mind was both blank, as he knew there would be a certain amount of simply walking through the events of the day, and had a high awareness that numerous eyes would be on him, and his every movement and facial expression would be observed and parsed for any shades of meaning they might contain. It was to be a historic day, one that would alter the course of the country, and it would forever be known as one in which he presided over as king. It was, even before it happened, to be one of the most significant events in the reign of King Pendragon. Because of that, Pendragon almost couldn't allow his thoughts to stray too far, or he feared that he would go down a path that would find it all unraveling, collapsing under the weight of its tremendous importance. 
There would be a great deal of simply staring forward, not thinking anything, just allowing the day to pass without incident, and that, he told himself, was really the best thing he could do. When he thought about all the eyes that would be on him or the incredible significance of the day, he started to quail inside, and the thought of sitting atop his horse for hours as the Saxons trudged past seemed like an onerous obligation he would have preferred not to endure. No, a large part of being king is merely being a symbol, he thought, and today was the day to be nothing but a symbol, to empty himself and simply be seen there, solid and strong and blank, for all watching to project their own thoughts onto. He hadn't thought that he would ever become such a person. He honestly hadn't thought that being a king would be composed of so many of these absolutely bizarre moments. But he found himself there, at that time, preparing to make his big achievement for the day simply sitting regally atop a horse. Of course, his real achievement was the truce and the departure of the Saxons. That is what people would remember, and that is what history would record about that day. But it would be Pendragon's achievement, although it was Merlin's idea. Here was another area of thought that was best given a wide berth. Whose achievement was it? It would go down as Pendragon's, and all he had to do was keep quiet. It's not even like he was denying anyone rightful credit. That was the deal. Merlin had the brilliant idea. Pendragon carried it out and got to accept credit for it. Those were, apparently, the terms of the advantage that he enjoyed with Merlin at his side. It was a great advantage, one that he could not be refused. With it, he looked forward to a long, successful, perhaps it was not too wild to think, incredibly successful kingship. He could go forward with his own ideas, but half of them, or more, would probably fail. Getting the Saxons to leave without further life lost on either side, that idea would never have originated with him. He simply never, ever would have thought about it, so trained as he had been his entire life for war. So, score one for Merlin. Pendragon had to know that if he'd followed his own wisdom, they would have been locked in endless war for all of the future that could be foreseen. He'd won by enacting Merlin's plan. This was how Pendragon's first great victory was also a bit of a private defeat. Not to mention that, in all the years he'd dreamed of returning home to claim his birthright, and all the time he looked forward to facing and surmounting the challenges that kingship would throw at him, he never once imagined that he would never have to do any of that, because his role would be primarily to be executor to someone else's ideas. Still, who could knowingly turn away from assured success? It was all too much to think about just then. Uther might tell him not to think about it at all. His younger brother was always exhorting him to think less and act more, for he did have a tendency to get mired in the intricacies of complex situation. Perhaps it didn't matter at all who really was running the country, and he did recognize it as the kind of thing that might drive him crazy. He put it out of his mind, and a few hours later was at the front of a line of his troops, sitting atop his horse, just beside Uther and Ulfius, each on their own horses. Across from them, about thirty feet away, was another line of his own men, and in between, an open path for the Saxons to begin their trek toward the sea and take departure from that country. They were in the wide valley near where Hanks had commandeered a large, heavily fortified castle and made it his stronghold. The castle loomed large and dark in the king's vision to the left. 
Straight ahead, a line of mountains that were topped in black rock, with a bright, vivid line of green grass that began a hundred feet down from the ridge, and extended all through the valley in which the king and his men found themselves. Armies of Pendragon's men created a corridor leading from the castle on the left, extending to the king and past him, off about four hundred feet to the right, toward Winchester and the sea. The day was cloudy, but not cold, although wet, so much of the green of the grass shone bright under the lowering skies, as though lit from beneath. There was a horn, and Pendragon could see some of his own men on horseback begin the procession from the castle. As the horses came slowly forward, behind them marched orderly lines of Saxon troops, in battalion after battalion, about ten men across and twenty long, moving slowly down the open corridor toward the king. They would march past him and continue, both led and followed by his men until they reached the port. They had no need to fear any Saxon rebellion on the way, since they were not allowing the enemy to leave with their weapons or armor. When they reached the sea, they would board the very ships that Pendragon and his men had arrived on and take them back to Saxony. The first Saxon troops trudged by the king. He was interested to see how they would react and saw that most of them kept their eyes directed downward and stepped forward mechanically as they walked out in defeat. He could see some of them looking up to scan the faces of the men alongside their procession, and a few of them gazed openly at the king as he passed. He sometimes returned their glances, seeing them angry or proudly defiant or merely curious and exhausted by fighting. But for the most part, they kept their eyes down, and the king offered them the dignity of keeping his own face blank and expressionless, ensuring their departure, but trying not to shame or embarrass them any more than they already would be. Then, at the front of the line of his own troops that faced him, he saw Merlin. He was directly across from him, and he stared at Pendragon so intently, with such a queer smile on his face, that it made the king very uncomfortable. He straightened a rigidity atop his steed and looked away immediately, made very self-conscious. Then he thought that might seem odd. He was friends with Merlin after all, and he turned his eyes back, expecting to wave hello at him, or maybe just nod? A wave somehow seemed undignified, but the wizard's eyes were trained on him with such an intense gaze, and at the same time seeming somehow not to see him, that Pendragon's eyes instinctively jumped away. He watched the lines of passing men as they approached, keeping his head angled a bit to the left to watch them, although he was still aware of Merlin out of the corner of his eye. Did the wizard mean to make him uncomfortable? Did he mean to, well, was he there, and so obvious to hammer home that none of this was Pendragon's doing? No one had said that, obviously. No one but the king himself. But the presence of the wizard seemed to have some meaning, and it brought the king's mind right back to this line of thinking that morning. Could any of this be credited to him? When he could stand it no more, for he felt the gaze of the seer like a nagging, uncomfortable presence, like an insect on his arm, his eyes darted back to him and found him looking nearby, at Uther. But his eyes returned to the king at once, in such a way that it seemed that he heard the king's thoughts, and Pendragon had to realize, in a way he hadn't before, that Merlin was probably aware of every one of his thoughts. This made his skin crawl, to be honest. He remained absolutely motionless atop his horse, holding himself rigid in sudden nervousness, and his eyes looked immediately away, feeling suddenly naked, exposed, and he wanted nothing more than to be away from Merlin. 
This was followed by the immediate and peerlessly unnerving realization that Merlin probably knew that too. And it came with a simple, singular impulse to flee. It took all of his strength to simply sit in place, maintaining a placid expression as the Saxons continued to troop by. He felt at once that Merlin must have been privy to his entire thought process of that morning on whether this truce was really his own doing and whether anything he might do during his own kingship would, in fact, be to his own credit. Was he to be a puppet king? Was he a puppet to this wizard? His eyes turned boldly to the wizard across from him at this, as though demanding an answer. He found the wizard looking at him, as though studying him, watching him as he went through all of these thoughts, and while he was able to share his gaze for a short time, once more he was forced to lower his eyes. Was he an object of study to the seer? Were they all? Or was Merlin not thinking any of this at all? Was Merlin across from him right now to deliberately make him uncomfortable, so that he might be studied? That was definitely how it felt, and at once a wave of defiance hardened within him, and he could feel his jaw setting. He felt that this, this moment, was his triumph as king, and it made him angry that the wizard was there, distorting it all around him. Then it followed hard after that that it wasn't even his triumph. It was true, Pendragon had done what was best for the country, but it was Merlin's doing, which would be a great boon and advantage for the country. With this thought, the anger and tension dropped out of Pendragon, and he saw that this is what he needed to keep his eyes on, what was best for the country. That was where he and Merlin agreed, and when it came down to it, it didn't matter who did what, as long as the country succeeded. Pendragon then felt a little childish for being so petty. Maybe he was just a puppet for the wizard. Maybe that made him lucky. He'd been handed an advantage that no other king on earth had ever had, and he'd be a fool not to use it over a little matter of whether it was his idea or someone else's. Besides, all of the glory would accrue to him. Everyone in the country would believe that it was his genius that had led them, and Merlin was happy for him to take the credit. Then Pendragon thought on how Merlin must feel, using his own advantage and power to put the kingdom on the right path, while arranging for all the credit to go somewhere else. To him, in fact. Pendragon decided that if he had to be a wildly successful king, and it remained his little secret that someone else handed him all his best ideas, well, there were far worse fates. And then he had what seems like it should be an obvious thought for a king, but wasn't, that when he became troubled or confused, his first thought should be for the good of not himself, but for the country. He was, after all, its king, which meant not that he was owed all the glory, but that he was entrusted to be guardian of the lives of all within the realm. Looking at it this way, of course, he would just be blessed to receive the best advice he could get in order to live up to that trust. Then his eyes turned once more to Merlin across from him, no longer with anger or fear, and he met the gaze of the wizard with confidence. Then he found that the expression of the seer had changed entirely and regarded him with an overwhelming air of warmth and affection. Merlin smiled at him, not one of his creepy smiles, but a genuine expression of fond regard, and he nodded knowingly. One of the wizard's hands came up and gestured toward the king in a motion of reverence, and a moment later he slipped backward into the crowd and was lost from sight. Pendragon breathed easier and simply sat, collecting his thoughts for a long while as he let the tension he'd created in himself run out, something today's big goal of sit quietly on your horse and maintain a noble face made blessedly possible. 
All of his worries of that morning now seemed, from a different perspective, to be nothing more substantial than pointless problems he had worked up in his mind. And he could see that, if he allowed it, these illusions could easily get the better of him and perhaps even derail his kingship. That in addition to controlling the country, he also faced the challenge of controlling his own mind. A movement nearby distracted him from his thoughts, and when he looked up, he saw the smiling Uther bring his course a bit closer to him. The end of the line of Saxon troops had now emerged from the castle, and soon the entire group of invaders would be past them, continuing their procession to the sea and out of the Britain's country. Pendragon was knocked forward by the impact of Uther's strong hand clapping him on the back. "'Well, brother,' Uther said proudly, "'you've done it!' Pendragon lifted his head and looked back at him, mouth drawing into a half-smile while opening his mouth to respond, trying to think of something clever, mind thrown back on the irony of whether he'd done anything at all. And while he was caught up in his thoughts, the moment passed and it seemed ridiculous to make any reply. He nodded warmly at his brother, smiled graciously, then turned his head away. End of part two. That's it for today. Join us next week as the story continues. If you get tired of listening over the course of several months, the full ebook and paperback of this novel is available over at Amazon and most other online retailers. You can also order book three, The Void Place, which takes us up to the birth of Arthur, our future king. The full audiobook will also be available and might be by the time you listen to this over at audible.com where you can also find the first book. Just search for The Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N or Scott Tellick, T-E-L-E-K. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit The Swithin website at theswithin.com, T-H-E-S-W-I-T-H-E-N.com, where you can also sign up for email updates. And if you like this podcast and this story, please, please tell a friend or a relative or leave a comment on social media or whatever works best for you. But any recommendations you make to anyone else would be very much appreciated. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe or leave a comment or what have you, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.